Time for another edition of the Metrospective. Pete McCarthy, Tim Britton with you. It is episode number 56. We have named it for one Brian McRae. And we'll get to 57 a little bit later on the show. If you're wondering why BMAC, you can go back to the last episode, go to the end, and see what our rationale, what the competition was of all the Mets that have worn number 56 over the years. There'll be some high numbers, spring training now. Everybody is there uh, as uh, we welcome in Tim Britton. And uh, Tim, uh, yesterday, or I should say Wednesday, a special visitor, Tony Clark, the head of the Players Association, showing up. And it, it seemed to... It's quite the discussion now, even within the ranks of the union. Uh, obviously, they have a big CBA discussion coming up, but now this Astros cheating scandal and the sign stealing and what is okay and what isn't and, and what should be the punishment. What were some of the talking points from these Mets players that led that meeting to run over a bit? Yeah, well, I, I think the number one talking point coming out of that from from the the players' perspective was the need for unity. You, you've had over these last couple of weeks, as as players have been reporting to camp, a lot of kind of player-on-player player vitriol. There's been plenty for Commissioner Rob Manfred also. Uh, he's not escaped anything here, but a lot of players uh, not on the Astros upset with a lot of players on the Astros. So, uh, you know, uh, the Mets player rep, Michael Conforto, talked about kind of how you know, a, a lot of the meeting was getting to a unified stance on what should be the next steps to prevent something like this from happening. I was a little surprised they didn't talk as much about, you know, if we have something like this in the future, maybe we will punish individual players in a way that they weren't disciplined this last time. That, it, you know, a quote-unquote player-driven scheme, uh, according to the MLB's official report, ended up with a general manager and a manager being, being fired uh, or being suspended and then fired. Um, but they did talk more about kind of the logistics of what what can we do to prevent this type of behavior, uh, and that's kind of limiting access to live in-game video, which is something that affects players at kind of different levels. Uh, you know, a guy like Conforto said he's not really a guy who, who looks at that in between at-bats, whereas I know a guy like Brandon Nimmo likes to do that to see, okay, what, where was that pitch? What can I get out of that at bat before he goes up the next time? Uh, and, and players kind of have different relationships to how much video they want to see. So that's one of the issues you, you run into with this. But overall, uh, you know, Conforto mentioned, we've got a fight coming after the 2021 season. That's when the CBA is up uh, and the players want and need to have really a unified front at that point in time to kind of claw back some of the things that it feels like they lost in the last negotiations and clearly look uh, it's not everybody on the same page with everything considering what is going on in the sport right now and so many star players throughout the game sniping at the Houston Astros to me this is pretty simple if you want to prevent it going forward why does anybody need live video uh, replay just the manager makes the call based on what he saw with his own eyes It'll speed up the game. We don't need 30 seconds for somebody to look at 10 angles, call the dugout so that the manager can then say, all right, umpires, you guys go walk over, and then they'll take a look in New York, and you have this whole process. And look, even if you want to see your at-bats afterwards, just put it on a delay where it takes five minutes, and then you can look at the video or whatever it might be. So guys, if they really are dying to see their at-bats in the middle of the game, and if they lose that, I don't really care either way. But I think that's a very simple way. Just do away with the live video that these teams have access to, that clearly they can't all be trusted with it. And B, baseball had no ability to oversee any of this. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with you because the 
the real Pandora's box here was when they had they they brought in the video the video review room mm-hmm. uh, when when managers could challenge it. and and to me I agree with you that there's really no like replay is there to fix the egregious egregiously bad calls so why do we have uh, those calls where the guy like slides past the bag is off it for a half second. Uh, and the guy maintains the tag on him. Like, the things that you wouldn't, watching live, look like very easy calls that only on kind of that split-second replay look do you get overturned. That Like, that's not the reason we have replay. So I, I agree that it should just be, like, what you see with your with the naked eye. We don't I don't need a replay room at all to go over that stuff. No. Uh, so I, th- I think that is the basic solution, though we haven't heard any, like, Rob Manfred has talked about limiting player access to live video, but it sounds like they still want to keep the replay room and the whole, the whole challenge system and all that. And, uh, you know, they've added monitors to to be in that room to make sure it's not being misused. Uh, and that seems like, at best, kind of a half solution that, that can probably be manipulated itself uh, by a team that really wants to. Uh, so uh, I, I agree with you 100% on that, that it, it seems like there's a very obvious solution staring them in the face that they're overlooking. What do you make of the fact that Michael Conforto uh, is now the player rep with the union and he's not a guy like many that we've heard be very forceful about these things but he gave his take uh, on the live video feeds and you know maybe it's it's not the best idea here so uh, what do you make of the fact that Conforto makes himself a, a little bit more vocal and has ascended to a leadership position uh, there as the union rep in the clubhouse? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that we've seen, I think, more and more players across the sport be a little bit more vocal about uh, the collective bargaining agreement. Certainly, like, Chris Bryant in Chicago has been a, a big example of that because of what he's gone through in terms of his, his service time grievance and all that. Uh, and I think there is kind of just more of an awareness on the part of the players. And we see this in other sports, too. We see it, especially, I think, in the NBA, uh, of players kind of... F- getting to know labor relations a little bit more and it's probably not like the most fun conversation topic uh in a clubhouse or for a podcast but uh it's an important one for their livelihoods obviously and conforto you know a lot of times that that player rep thing is just thrown on a young guy because none of the the veteran players really want to deal with it uh but he's had it for a little bit of time now Uh, i'm not sure if this is his, his second or third year as the player rep uh, so he's, he's stuck with it uh, and seems to, to be getting to know the ins and outs of it a little bit. And I thought that was interesting when he said, you know, there there is a fight coming. That's that's a pretty strong phrasing of things, uh, but not necessarily an inaccurate one, given where free agency has gone over the last several years. And he'll have some personal vested interest in all of that when he becomes a free agent two years from now. But what about even within the clubhouse? Is he someone who we don't talk about him as a leader much, but is Conforto, he's one of the longest tenured guys in the club, if you could believe that. Uh, you know, how, where, where does he stand within that group? It's wild to think of him as one of the longest tenured guys on the team at this point. I mean, it was Juan Lagares for a long time, right? Right. Now, now that Juan and, and Zach Wheeler are gone, is it is it DeGrom the longest tenured at this point? Officially? DeGrom would be before Conforto. Yeah. I would guess so. My gosh. Um, yeah. So, you know, Conforto and Syndergaard are guys who now have been there for a while. Um, I, you know, he's not like the uh, real vocal guy. You know, he's not. I, I, you get the sense that Alonzo uh, is kind of more of the uh, rah-rah kind of leader uh, to kind of get guys going in the clubhouse. But Conforto kind of, you know, is, is more a lead by example kind of guy, goes about things the right way uh, and 
you know, DeGrom is kind of similar from the pitching side of things. And and if Conforto were to start having the kinds of seasons that DeGrom has been having lately, I think the Mets would love that. And he would be an an even better leader. Um, So I I think we we do see him taking on a little bit more responsibility as more of a veteran. Uh, I think it's a great point you make that he would be especially interested in the next CBA, considering he's a free agent exactly at that time uh, and and wants it to be as favorable uh, for players uh, as possible, given his own personal vested interest in it. but, you know, it's an interesting mix on this team where you've got some of the some older guys, but guys who haven't been with this organization for that long, like a Robinson Cano. Uh, and then you've got younger guys coming up who are, are kind of who've played in the minors together, like Alonzo and McNeil, uh, Dom Smith and J.D. Davis a little bit. Uh, and then you've got uh, Conforto and DeGrom and, and Syndergaard, guys who've been here for a while and kind of not quite young, not quite veterans yet, getting close to that first, you know, getting close to the service time where you'd be a free agent uh, and kind of quieter leaders in the way they go about things, but still important tone setters, uh, especially this time of year. Well, let's take this opportunity to kind of dive into where Michael Conforto is right now. Uh, He's going into his sixth major league season. Uh, You know, he should be right in the prime of his career, 26 years old, and he'll turn 27 on March 1st. So uh, that's coming up. He hasn't been that 300 hitter. I think that a lot of Mets fans thought when you first saw his swing when he came up in 2015. We've seen him at times get very homer happy, and that seems to be what he focuses on. I still look at him as a guy that the peak would be something like Christian Yelich. And what Yelich was in Miami, and then boom, blew up in Milwaukee, becomes an MVP candidate. I guess our expectations can't be that high for Michael Conforto at this point, but what kind of season might you expect might be a fair expectation uh, from Conforto as he's starting to reach to the point that he is what he is and that you're not dreaming on, you know, this big breakout year anymore. When you start talking about a guy who's been around six plus years as he will be after this year. I mean, the, the Yelich comparison is interesting and and look, no one's going to project that, uh, Conforto is just going to go out of his mind the way Yelich did once he got to Milwaukee. But Yelich, over his first five seasons, had a 121 OPS plus as a Marlin. Uh, you know, higher average, but a little less power than Conforto. Now, Conforto in his first five seasons, it's a 125 OPS plus, uh, better on base skills, uh, lower average, higher power than Yelich. Uh, so it's it's not like you know, no one would have projected Yelich to go off quite the way he did once he became a Brewer, becoming kind of uh, the best hitter in baseball over the last two years, not named Mike Trout. Uh, so I, I don't expect Conforto to do that, but uh, he, you know, he's got a similar track record up until that point uh, that Yelich took off. Uh, I talked to Conforto uh, the other day about kind of, you know, he had said he saw some untapped potential in himself, uh, basically saying what a lot of Mets fans say about him. Uh, and he said, you know, one of the things that happened last year was he, he just felt like he got a little too pull happy and became just kind of a a pull hap- uh, a pull power hitter. Uh, mm-hmm. And he really wants to get back to what he was earlier uh, during, you know, that 2017 season where he really stood out as being kind of an all fields guy yeah. with some power. Yeah, like the, the left center, the, baby. Like that's the doubles in the gap, you know, that's that's what he wants to get back to. And, you know, last year uh, he said he was really good. The, the big adaptation he made last year the big adjustment was having his hands quicker on the inside fastball that's where a lot of guys worked him for a while he could not get around on that pitch the way he wanted to so last year he started doing that uh but in doing that he kind of sold out to do that so now it's about 
being able to, to, to stay on the pitch on the outer part of the plate uh, and drive that with some authority the other way, which we've seen him capable of doing. It's just a matter of balancing those two approaches. You know, it's, it's really hard to do both of those things uh, at the plate at any given time. Uh, and that's really the next step for him. You know, it's not that dissimilar from, like, I remember Daniel Murphy talking about a, a similar thing uh, early in his career with the Mets, uh, where, you know, it was... He was so sold out to go the other way that he missed that pitch inside, and then he was trying to adapt to, to getting that pitch inside and then still cover the outside pitch. He, it took him a, a while to do it. I mean, I remember having these conversations with Murphy in like 2010, uh, and it wasn't until 2015 where it really clicked. But, uh, you know, with Conforto, that, that's the kind of dynamic he's got going where he wants to be the all-fields 300 hitter with some power, maybe more so than like the 250 hitter with 35 home runs. And this is the thing. I feel when he sells out, like he had a home run in Kansas City last year, which went about 500 feet. You don't need to hit the ball 500 feet to right center field. If you're selling out for that, okay, you crushed it. But what I always felt looking at him, when he went to left center, especially at City Field, he has more than enough power to hit it out. It doesn't need to go 460 feet. It just needs to get over that wall. And to be short of it, you're looking at doubles in that area. So I always felt that was where he'd be more effective. And he's going to look up and have 30 homers at the end of the year if he's able to do that consistently. And I think he'd pick up his average a little bit as well. And look, I, he's a student of the game, and he he studies a lot of these things. And I'm sure the, the Yelich comparison isn't out of nowhere because you had the numbers ready to go as soon as I mentioned uh, you know, Christian <laughs> Yelich. Let me ask you this. Is there anyone else that you consider a comp? For, for Michael Conforto? Is, is there another name I could have thrown out there that you'd just be like, yeah, it's OPS plus, it's this number? Uh, no, I pro- probably not. I've thought about it with Yelich, uh, and I, I'm, we might have talked about it at the end of last season also, because I, I believe we had an Is Michael Conforto Good podcast in which we said, yes, yes, he is. Um, uh, you know, for a while when I covered the Red Sox, there was the kind of the Andrew Benintendi, Michael Conforto comparison because their their college careers and their early professional careers had taken the same path. I know Benintendi's been a little up and down lately, but same kind of hitter. Uh, you know, your point about Conforto kind of bombing balls to the outfield. I mean, I remember there was one point in July where he hit in like a two week stretch. He had home runs in three different parks that went over the went over all of the seats in right mm-hmm. field, you know, hit it over everyone in City Field, hit it into the water uh, in uh, San Francisco, hit it over everyone, I think in Chicago against the White Sox. Uh, and he, he, so, he said the other day when I was talking to him, you know, the way the ball was flying last year, I, didn't, I don't really need to do that much to sell out to hit it that far. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, he, he pointed to the way Alonzo hits. Like, Alonzo was just trying to hit line drive, just trying to get the ball in the barrel, basically. And he knows he's got the power where if he does that, it's going to go out a lot of the time. So if Conforto... You know, he was saying, if I focus more on barreling balls up, it's going to kind of take care of itself, especially if the ball flies the way it did last year, that he's going to have that power the other way. That's really interesting is, you know, how the ball, you think it just makes it a home run derby type of game, but maybe that will be one of the adjustments by the hitters if it travels the same way in 2020 that, hey, I don't have to sell out for the home run. The home run will be there if I hit it solidly. And maybe we see the the launch angle, as it were, drop a little bit, and and guys, you know, just take the homers as they come, but you know, look to put the ball in play and not have to swing with a hundred percent effort every single time up. Yeah, and and one of the things that's interesting when you look at the more advanced statistics for Conforto is like his his average exit velocity is kind of like league average. It's it doesn't stand out. 
the way you might expect, but he does barrel the ball up a lot, you know, at, at a not quite an elite level, but a very good level. Uh, and that's really what matters more. You know, if you're if you're hitting the ball 98 miles an hour every time, but you're not getting on the barrel, that doesn't that doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, but if you're hitting it 87 most of the time, but you're barreling it up, you know, eight to 10 percent of the time, I think Conforto was at like eight percent last year, uh, then that that means you're getting more out of it. So I think uh, that that idea of just barreling it up more consistently should be the goal for him. And, and if he does that, uh, I think the numbers will take care of themselves. Now, I'm usually pretty good with this stuff, but I got a follow up to that. Now, my understanding is a barrel, doesn't it? Doesn't it have to be a certain exit velocity coming off the bat for it to be considered a, a barrel? Like, if you're going to hit the ball hard, that means that you are barreling it up. Could you could you explain, you know, you understand the relationship between those two things? Because I just, my brain kind of exploded a little bit. I just, I'm sure there are other people that might have as well, if I'm asking this so- well. So while you're asking that, I just looked up the definition of barrel, and it's a cylindrical container bulging out in the middle, traditionally made of wood. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I actually did Google that and was like, oh, right, that's what's going to come up. Uh, I, yeah, I know. I, I, I believe what you're saying is right, that to, to be a barrel, it has to be a certain uh, exit velocity and all that. Uh, but uh, it's better to to have, you know, you're getting the more out of it if you're barreling it up a larger percentage of the time and your exit velocity is, is smaller other times. Than if you consistently hit it at, you know, you can have a high exit velocity and hammer the ball into the ground, basically. Uh, that was kind of J.D. Davis's problem before last year. A lot of his, okay. his exit velocity was off of ground balls, which doesn't do a whole lot for you. Though Ground balls are still uh, basically fielded <laughs> at a high rate, no matter how hard you hit them. Uh, so uh, I, I think we, what people who know more about this than I do uh, have discovered in, in studying things is the, like the consistency of your barreling percentage, like that translates to on-field results, uh, higher weighted on base average and that type of thing uh, more consistently than just the exit velocity. Okay. So, Cause you gotta have the launch to... angle to go along with it. Like Eric Campbell, Sandy Alderson said they, when they were kind of dabbling with all this stuff and learning about it, he had a great exit velocity. So they kept throwing him out there, even though he couldn't get any hits and then they kind of eventually piece it together like, oh, he hits everything into the ground or for line drives. And so if he's not hitting it up into the air, it doesn't matter exactly how hard he's hitting it. I think that's understandable for most people. Yeah. And th- this is just what happened. You know, you get a new stat in what, 2015 is when, when we first started hearing about exit velocity mm-hmm. and you don't know exactly how to apply it because you've only got a limited amount of data. And now you're seeing a, l- a little bit more uh external validity to how people are looking at it because i I mean i looked at conforto's numbers and i was like man the exit velocity is lower than it feels like it should be but that barreling percentage was was higher than it is for guys who generally have that that exit velo if that makes sense where where do you think michael conforto hits in this lineup is he like a number five batter because I, i think we all thought he'd be a number three or maybe a number two and now with the emergence of Pete Alonso, he's not necessarily asked to be that. Jeff McNeil is more of the, you know, hit for a high average kind of guy. Do the expectations really drop to some degree for Conforto? Not for anything that he's doing. Maybe I should say the dependence from the team on Michael Conforto to be an elite bat in the middle of the lineup. I, I think you want. I think you want him in the top four in your order because I think you look at the Mets. Your three best hitters, in my mind, are, uh, and you can rank them however you want, McNeil, Alonzo, and Conforto. So I think those are guys you want in the top four of your lineup. 
Uh, I think it's an interesting idea of, of how you handle the leadoff spot because you've got in Brandon Nimmo, a guy who's going to get on base uh, at a high level. Almost, you know, he, he can his on base percentage will carry even a low batting average uh, because he, he walks and gets hit by pitches so often. Uh, and he's probably your best leadoff hitter, but your best overall lineup might not have him leading off, if that makes sense. Because I, I really like the idea of Alonzo hitting second. So you can imagine like a McNeil, Alonzo, Conforto start to your lineup. Uh, that's kind of, that's the way kind of the 2017 Astros went about it, uh, with, with Springer, Altuve and Bregman right at the start of their lineup or the 2018 Red Sox when it started with Mookie Betts, that kind of get the pitcher on his heels right away approach that we've seen teams operate with a little bit more often. Uh, otherwise I think if you, if you lead off with Nimmo, then you're doing like Nimmo, McNeil, Alonzo, Conforto, something like that. And you get a lot of Alonzo's up with two outs and nobody on in the first inning. So I, th- I think you want him hitting second, but it changes how you construct the lineup around him. And then, you know, is J.D. Davis your everyday left fielder? Is Dominic Smith going to play at some point? How, where do you want to fit Robinson Cano in? If Nimmo's not leading off, where does he hit? Because that's an interesting skill set. Well, I, I think that's a big part of it is because what Nimmo does is great if you're in the leadoff spot or leading off an inning. But if you have men on in scoring position and two out, that approach doesn't work. It's not worthwhile. I don't care if Nimmo walks and then sets up the eight batter, let's say Med Rosario or even the pitcher with men on base. Like That's worthless to me. I, I, if you're getting on base in front of McNeil, Alonzo, Conforto, awesome. So I think you lose a lot by dropping Nimmo in the lineup. See, I, I like Nimmo, McNeil, Alonzo, Conforto, and – I, I, I understand what you're saying, but, man, I, I hate Nimmo hitting seven. Like, it defeats the whole purpose. He's going to go up there. He's going to strike out looking with, uh, you know, two outs in an inning. He's just – he's not a guy who drives in runs, and that's what you're asking him to do if he's hitting down there. Yeah, and, and McNeil is someone who, if you dropped in the lineup, does – you know, he gets on base – via batting average basically most of the time uh so is someone like i mean you can imagine a lineup working with mcneil hitting third or something like that like that's not unreasonable especially given the way he hit for power uh in the second half of the season uh so i I think i mean these are fun conversations to have uh compared to go would you ever go nimmo alonzo mcneil i wouldn't be against that uh i think given the skill sets i would probably stick with mcneil ahead of alonzo uh, just because Alonzo's such a power hitter uh, that, that there's going to be a lot of home runs there. Um, but uh, I, I think there are certain lineups, you know, uh, covering the, the Red Sox in 2013, I think it was, where it was like Dustin Pedroia hit third all season long. And that's not a traditional number three hitter, but it worked the way they set their lineup. I think it was Ellsbury, Victorino, mm-hmm. Pedroia, Ortiz. Uh, and that, that worked for them because of the way that, that they had kind of those traditional top two hitters um, and, and Nimmo and McNeil can kind of fill a similar role in that regard. We just got to get somebody, the Victorino walk-up music that gets everybody popping, you know? That was a <laughs> Every good little one, thing's going to be all right, right? There you go. There you go. I, I mean, that's the, the kind of stuff that works. Uh, so got to backtrack it a little bit now. We started talking about, hey, the Players Association was in camp with the Mets on Wednesday with Tony Clark. So now this thing, I think, it, it's kind of run its course. It doesn't feel like it ever will, I guess, but... I think everybody who really needs to opine on the Astros has now opined on it, and I'll assume that's true for the Mets as well. Have you noticed within the Mets clubhouse, within the Mets world, 
any key difference in how different players view it, whether it be a pitcher versus a hitter, a veteran versus a young player, or even J.D. Davis and Jake Marisnik, who were involved with those Houston Astros. Is there anything that has been kind of eyebrow-raising after having kind of heard everybody's thoughts on this whole thing, even Della Batances, the guy who was on the opposite end of it as a Yankee? Right. I, th- I think if there were anyone who was in that clubhouse who would have had a real issue with it, it probably would have been Batances, given he was on that 2017 Yankees that lost them in the ALCS. You know, Rick Porcello was on the the the, the Red Sox that year who lost the Astros in the, the division series, and Porcello started that game four that Boston lost. But he was also on the Red Sox in 2018 when they had Alex Cora uh, and are currently under investigation for that. So I don't think he's really in a position to, to speak out too much. Um, so I, I think it's... For the Mets especially, uh, it, it's basically been a non-story. There was kind of the, the one day where they had uh, J.D. Davis and Jake Marisnik talk about it. I mean, Davis uh, is a guy who's, who's been in this clubhouse, who's got good relationships with guys and was such a bit player on that team uh, that it's hard to really say that he himself personally benefited uh, from it. You know, outside of, you know, he, he got a World Series ring, clearly. But, uh, like, his career did not take off in part because of that. You know, Marisnik, that was his career best season. I dove into the numbers a little bit. Uh, and, you know, it was – he had really good home splits that year. Uh, and the numbers were at their best when the trash can was, was, was banging in the background. But uh, his numbers were still very good at home well before they started using that. Uh, so it's it's tough to say it was entirely a byproduct of sign stealing. And again, Marisnik's not really here to be a, an 800 OPS guy the way he was that season. Um, so uh, it, I don't think there's animosity in the Mets clubhouse toward either one of those guys. And I think as a team that, you know, wasn't in the 2017 playoffs, didn't, you know, wasn't close to the playoffs. It wasn't like their series in Houston in September of that season kept them out of the playoffs or something like that. They're not in the American League. They didn't. They haven't seen the Astros since. They will see them uh, for four games this year, including an early April two-gamer in Houston. Um, I, I haven't seen much impact. I think the thing to look at now is what is preparation like for those two games in Houston and for, for yeah. you know, your sign system overall, how much is that going to change because of what you know now about what teams are trying to do? And I suppose it just came to me as you were kind of running down, but Seth Lugo was someone who thought back on that series in 2017 and said, hey, maybe that cost me a chance to be a starting pitcher. Has uh, has Carlos Beltran's name been uttered at all while you're down there in Port St. Lucie? Uh, I mean, like a very little amount. I mean, some guys said, oh, you know, you know, when Carlos was coming in, this is what we were thinking. And uh, I-, I talked to... Uh, Bertie Van Wagenen about Jeremy Hefner, the new pitching coach. And I said, you know, you, this is Hefner is 33, never been a pitching coach. You were pairing him with a, a manager who didn't have experience in Carlos. Uh, and we started talking about that whole dynamic. And then Brody at the end is kind of like, and you know, with Luis, it's, it's a pretty similar dynamic hmm. uh, with, with Luis Rojas. So, I mean, it's, he's not like a persona non grata, like people will say his name, um, but he's just not really a topic of conversation. Is Rojas as built as uh, Syndergaard likes to say? What have you learned about, I guess, uh, how he keeps himself in, in shape or whatever it might be? I mean, he said the, the first full squad workout day that he'd been there since about 5.30 in the morning doing his workout routine. Uh, so it, it does sound – it's not just Syndergaard. Other players I've talked to who have uh, played for, for Rojas in the minor leagues have mentioned that he, he got after it in the weight room at least as, as much as they did, if not more. Uh, and so a guy who, who keeps himself in good shape uh, 
how that translates to managerial success, uh, I don't know. But uh, it, it's one way of, of connecting with the players a little bit more if, if they know you're in the, the weight room working as hard as, as Rojas seems to be. Can't hurt. Can't hurt. Uh, all right. It's quick hitters here. Watch out for Ottomans. Is that the new danger item uh, for, for baseball teams now? Uh, it's, it's good it's a minor injury. Otherwise, that would have like joined that long list of, uh, of freakish athlete injuries like Clint Barman's carrying venison or uh, was it Sammy Sosa who heard himself sneezing? Um, <laughs> like I think those it was a couple of, of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so g- good for Seth Lugo that it does not seem to be a major thing. But uh, as someone who has an, uh, a little Ottoman coffee table, I know how frustrating it can be to <laughs> kick it, as I do it all the time. Uh, and thankfully, it hasn't broken any bones. So. And that's in your own place where you should know what's going on. You know, a hotel, at least you have the excuse. I, I didn't design. I didn't furnish this thing. I don't know where everything's going. I would say at least once every two weeks, I oh my hit God. my foot on something in my in my own apartment, and it's like it's a small apartment. I know every I know where everything is. It shouldn't it shouldn't happen this often. We need to get uh, Tim an interior designer pronto. Uh, but yeah, Seth Lugo broken pinky toe. He should be fine. The Mets uh, are going to be playing the Orioles at the U.S. Naval Academy between spring training and the start of opening day. Of course, last year. There was some unpleasantness, unhappiness, I guess I should say, from Noah Syndergaard in particular about playing at Syracuse. I would, I would think at least this is on the way to New York. Um, you know, what do you, what do you make of this trip? And, and obviously, you know, playing at the U.S. Naval Academy, uh, as it turns out, against the Baltimore Orioles, probably feels a little more important than promoting the new, you know, AAA Syracuse Mets for some of the players. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is something that they've they've talked about doing uh, for a few years now. Uh, so it's nice to see it come together. Uh, and I, I think one of the complaints about Syracuse was not only how far out of the way it was, but that they were going there just for like a glorified workout in a non-baseball facility. Uh, and I remember like the pictures of the mounds that they were building for guys to throw off of. Like, it just seemed kind of improvised and, and like they were winging it. Whereas this, you know, will be like more of a, a this will be an actual baseball game, uh, albeit an exhibition one, but under kind of more usual circumstances. So I, my guess, I haven't talked to anyone uh, on the team about it yet, is that they will be more on board with this than they were last year. All right. Well, that'll be a good thing. I uh, don't need any of that drama right before opening day once again. And you know, give the guys time to, to get settled in New York whenever, you know, when they make that trip uh, for opening day uh so you know lessons learned uh perhaps uh, from what went on last year on all sides and then uh port st lucie i mean what's the duffy's tracker at now tim are we at are we in double figures uh getting out to duffy's where are we at it's the <laughs> place know, to be skipped duffy's the other day to try there's a there's a brewery down the block from uh from clover park uh unbeknownst to me they were having trivia night uh, and even which sounded like an intriguing thing, I can and sometimes be good at trivia. Uh, but it was it's always sunny in Philadelphia trivia. Oh, I would have killed at that. Uh, we yeah, we really could have used you because oh. uh, between uh, the group of beat writers we had there, I think we'd seen like a grand total of five or six episodes. Oh no, uh, you guys are missing out. <laughs> I know uh, the episodes I've seen, I really like. I just haven't seen many. I did not know that that show has been on for 14 years. It's a lot of episodes I haven't been seen. Been a long time. Yeah, that, that's a lot of show to to try to be up on and such. Uh, but you know, if they were asked for Christian Yelich's OPS plus, you would have been all set. But always sunny. I guess they they got a weak weakness of yours. The sports trivia that I did like two weeks ago 
dominated with, with some friends. This one, uh, dead last finish with negative points. Oh, my God. That's not good. So what? let me ask you this, if you can't tell me. Multiple beat writers show up for trivia night. What do you name your team? Oh, it's an inside joke that I don't, I don't think I can, I can, you know, <laughs> every trivia team name is an inside joke that is only funny to the people who are on that team. So not offensive, just not funny for everybody else. So we'll, right. uh, we'll leave that, leave that in the background. All right. I'll drop that one. Uh, number 57 coming up. This is an easy one for you, Tim. No dramatic decisions. You don't have to be pouring over career OPS pluses. It's either Jason Roach, Eric Valente. Or Johan Santana. Well, you know, we all remember where we were when this historic moment in Mets history happened, when Eric Valente hit for the cycle at Olympic Stadium, <laughs> uh, <laughs> in whatever year that was, oh three, oh four, that that time, like One the, of those the the bad Mets teams then. Uh, so yes, this is as we've been trudging through some of the uh, the numbers lately. Uh, I've had my eye on this one as being uh, a nice, easy, well earned podcast episode for Johan Santana. Where were you the night of his no hitter? Uh, I believe I was covering a Boston Celtics playoff game. Uh, Interesting. So you you didn't was, you just found out about it afterwards? Then you wouldn't be able to watch a thing. Uh, I was following the. Uh, I, th- I, be, I think I turned on MLB TV in about the eighth inning. Uh, okay. which might not be the most professional way to cover an NBA playoff game, uh, <laughs> a long press row. But I, yeah, but it I'd pays off it, now, later in your career. I'd heard about it in about the uh, the sixth inning, and, and you know, as, as as someone who can rattle off the names of guys who've wrecked Mets no-hitters in the past, like Paul Hoover and Kit Pello, uh, it was it was necessary for me to watch, to watch that in progress. And we all thought for sure it would be Yadi Molina, and uh, thankfully never made it to the plate. David Freeze getting it done. Uh, so there you go. Johan Santana. Uh, he will be the namesake uh, for the next episode of the Metrospective coming your way next week. We'll be operating twice a week from now through the end of the season. So uh, plenty of Metrospectives coming your way. Uh, Tim Britton with all the coverage in spring training and what's happening with these New York Mets. We'll keep the Duffy's counter going as long as we can. Maybe they have a trivia night you could uh, attend and tell us all about, Tim. As long as it's about a television show that I've watched, I'll be all over it. (laughs) All right, bud. Be good. Adios.